my guest today in the Reading Corner is David Wollstonecroft. He's a screenwriter who's notched up a number of BAFTA awards, including one for the TV spy drama Spooks. He's also written two spy thrillers, Good News, Bad News and Contact Zero. Today, we're talking about his debut children's novel, The Magic Hour. It's a thrilling and pacey magical adventure. And as the title indicates, it's a novel in which both time and magic are important. But before talking about those themes, I invited David to read from the beginning of the book. All right. So this is chapter one. There are 60 chapters in The Magic Hour. It's my debut children's uh, middle grade novel. And I'm writing the second one at the moment. And the idea is that they all have 60 chapters because obviously they're sort of locked into this time idea. Anyway, this is chapter one. The girl who was late. There is never enough time for anything, particularly when your house explodes. Elsa Craig knew this all too well. She was always the one who was running behind, skidding into classrooms, swimming lessons and birthday parties, always apologizing, explaining, promising that next time, cross her heart, things would be different. Born two weeks late, that girl went the family joke, and she's made a habit of it ever since. It happened so often, she even had a catchphrase. Sorry I'm late, she'd say. I didn't get here on time. Time was a puzzle to Ailsa. Some weeks moved like sludge. Others were all fizz and bubbles. There had been an entire year when the world felt like a steel trap, where hours felt like days and months melted into forever. In better, sunnier moments, her nose deep in a good book, a summer holiday might breeze past before she even knew it. On the chilly Scottish night that we meet her, however, time wasn't moving at all. It was frozen. And so was she, rooted to the spot, staring up at wisps of acrid smoke. This is Ailsa's story, so we'll cover the basics at speed. The quality of her character, loyal, kind, nostalgic, stubborn, and late, as you'll recall, Her interests, science books, and most of the things in between. The hour of her birth, midnight, stroke of. Her general appearance, tall enough to reach the ground, with chaotic curly hair of which she was very proud. Glasses, usually sliding down her nose. Hat, yellow, knitted, eyes, green, curious. And the name of her two cats, both called Steve for reasons that cannot be adequately explained here. As for the rest... You'll just have to pick it up along the way because, well, exploding houses, come on, that feels like something which deserves our attention. Plus, as you probably know, there's actually no speed limit for books. So we can go as fast as we like. There's so much packed into that chapter, and I think (laughs) you're going to get the chance to unpick quite a lot of it. But I'm going to start with Ailsa. She's described as somebody who's floating around the boundaries like a lonely balloon. She's described as something of a shapeshifter, which might become significant as we go through the novel. Tell us a little bit about Ailsa and how she came to be the protagonist for this story. Well, as you probably can guess, I'm obsessed about time. And uh, I have a child of my own who is sort of grown up feeling quite nostalgic at times. And those two things combined and brewed in my head. And so Ailsa sort of arrived and announced herself. Edinburgh is a very welcoming city in general. I wanted somebody who wasn't from Edinburgh, but came in and sort of had to adapt, which is something that I'd experienced in my early life. That sort of relatable sense of being not from where you are growing up. And being around people who have 
deep, deep roots there. And you sort of feel on the outside. And then I thought, well, if she's trying to process all this and she's got divorced parents and she's sort of between things, she's a tween, I guess, in demographic terms. So she's she's a girl who's trying to find her place. And when you're trying to do that, that there's not enough hours in the day to do all the things you need to do because there's this all this other stuff, this kind of iceberg under the surface. So I wanted her to be funny. I wanted her to be somebody who not necessarily speaks her mind, who's a bit concerned because she's learned how to do that. Again, when you're from somewhere else, you're just getting the measure of a place. And so in that, that sense of she's always in a hurry, she's always late. So she's sort of making a name for herself at the same time. And she's from this semi-scientific family. So she knows that this sense of there is order in the world and there is this you know, the scientific method was this uh, note that her grandmother gave her. Uh, her grandmother was a scientist, and it sort of helps her navigate the world, even though she's late in it. So I think that's sort of where it came from. Somebody who's curious about the world, but hasn't quite put her feet on the, on it yet. It's interesting because, as you say, that comes from partly being an outsider. But there's also a sense in which it's true for all children of her age. They're all trying to find their place in the world And she does remind me of another character from children's literature for whom there was great curiosity, and that's Alice in Wonderland. Mm. And the Mm -hmm. name Ailsa and Alice, is that coincidence or not? It is, actually. I've always liked Ailsa Craig. I grew up in Scotland, it's no surprise. And so Ailsa Craig, whenever I learned about it, just seemed like a character's name in a book. So it wasn't intentional, but I do understand. I mean, I mean, Alice in Wonderland is the Pangea of any two-world story, right? It's about mm-hmm. this world and then the portal. Wherever the door opens, if it's a rabbit hole or, in this case, a slightly less mythic portal, there's nothing intentional there, but it's very flattering to, to hear that there's, a, there's an echo. Uh, there's a resonance, I would say, an echo or a resonance, but you don't feel that you're reading a rewrite of Alice in Wonderland at all. Thanks. But but there are connections, you know, the white rabbit is always late. He's got his watch and he's always running. So Mm, you kind of get little connections coming through. Huh, I hadn't thought of that. But as I say, I did not feel that I was reading Alice in Wonderland. It just kept triggering memories. And maybe we should think a little bit about that idea of time, which really is so central to this book. We have more idioms about time in our language than anything else. Quite a few of them are peppered through this book. Every second counts. I never seem to have enough time. Even when you talked about holding the book in your hand, the time Mm -hmm. that it takes to read, the kind of magic that there can be years or just seconds in a novel. Yeah. And it is a preoccupation of this point in history. We are fascinated by time and what that might mean. So I'm interested to know what triggered that for you. I think it's taken me a long time to get there, but I I realized time gives life meaning because when life is infinite, there's no significance to it. So it compresses it into meaning. Pretty much soon after, my my daughter was in a, a sort of year one class, I suppose it would be called here. And she had walked past a kindergarten playground or a nursery playground and commented, got nostalgic for how small everything was. Oh my God, you're still tiny, but you're nostalgic. And that sense of time having meaning for a child, that sense of, wow, there are grown-ups who are very old and a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old are all just old. They're just over there. 
And you're in this childhood point of every day is significant because it's a major part of your life. It's a major proportion of your life. And as you get older, of course, days become less proportionately significant, but time itself becomes more significant because there's less of it. But I think that idea of it being heartbeat of stories, I've had many notes. I work in, in TV and film as well, the, the ticking clock concept of you either have a limited number of options or you have a limited number of seconds or hopefully both in an exciting story. That's how the engine works. And so I think the idea behind this was to write something about time with obviously a compelling character, the dilemma, and there's a sort of, I think, very juicy, relatable dilemma about this extra hour in the day. What would you do with it? And the cost of things, the fact that we just take things for granted, but also to make it snackable for anyone reading the book, kids or otherwise, who are interested in an exciting story. So there's a page-turning aspect to it, which was deliberate, and it comes naturally to me in general, but that sense of you better hurry up and find out and don't miss anything. And there are certain things that I'm not telling you yet, and you're going to want to find out what they are, which is kind of what being 11 is like. You kind of want to hurry up and be older so you've got agency, but at the same time, you're sort of hanging on to enjoying being a kid at the same time. So I think that's all wrapped up into why time appeals to me. You know, I think losing a loved one suddenly hit you and you realize it's like a a cold water hose on you. You're like, oh, right, that's what life is and that's what life was. And now this is how much I've got left. What am I going to do with it? What matters in life is love and the memory of these moments means they will never die. That's right. Children and adults, as you've expressed so clearly, they experience time in different ways. And I think great children's books, when I think about some of the classics, Winnie the Pooh, we've mentioned Alice in Wonderland. Often I think there's an element in there that speaks to an adult and speaks to a child. And when a child revisits that book, as they get older, they see it in a different way. Right. Yeah, that's that's the plan for this book. Not, I mean, you know, you may as well swing big when you write in general, and you can't help but put yourself into the story. So definitely, it's the sort of book that I would have loved to read when I was 10. But now that I'm in my 50s, I would still find the story appealing for different reasons. It's like all the best books try and do that. You know, I imagine a parent reading this book to their kid too. And the kid might turn and see their parent or guardian reading to them and wonder why they're getting a little dewy-eyed at some point. The sense of nostalgia or the importance of time, which is lost on some kids and the significance only accrues through life experience, really. There's a great article written years ago by uh, Victor Watson about what makes a children's classic. And he talked about it being the love between a parent and a child. And that is often around elements of time and how we perceive that. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Oh, that's perfect. Because it's quality time. I made a point of reading with my daughter every chance I got because I wanted there to be on some level when she was older, and perhaps I wasn't around, that she could be reading. And there's some deep plumb line back down to, oh, yeah, I used to do this with my dad. This is something that I used to share with my dad. And so I think there's probably a bit of artifact going on with me writing this for sure. How can a classic story not be about time, since it's literally the most important thing that's flowing through everything we do every day? It's just the most precious thing. And we're all wasting it, and we're all doing things in modern life that's supposed to be preserving it, is sort of draining it. 
Mm. It does feel like that. And I don't know. I'm sure I've had conversations over glasses of wine with friends where it's like, does it feel to you like things are just starting to tumble out of control? Are we in a shopping trolley going down a slope somehow? Why does it feel faster now? It's the same feeling you get when you go into an old church and you see those footfalls in the stone. It's more moving to me than seeing stone that's been eroded by rain, which is still beautiful. But it's like literally the size of a human foot that's tread over the threshold for thousands of years. Getting back to the story, Elsa has lost her um, grandparents and she's concerned about the mortality of her own parents and the world in general. There's, the stakes get bigger and bigger when she discovers this hour of time and discovers it has a price. You know, We're not equipped to look at the big time. We're only equipped to look at generational time as humans. And mm-hmm. it's very hard. That's why government in general is useless because they don't look anywhere like the kind of distance that needs to be dealt with. And then imagine being 10, experiencing time, but having not much agency with it at the same time. So you are taken to point A to point B, you are told where to sit and what to do. And so your experience of time is regimented by grown-ups. Let's talk about the other word in the title, which is magic. Maybe take us into uh, telling our listeners a little bit more at least about the beginning of the plot. All right, so Ailsa grows up in Edinburgh. She's not from Edinburgh, but she's adjusting to school life. She lives between her mum and her dad. She doesn't have any time. She's always late to everything. And it's just something that has kind of become embedded in her. But there are all these kids at school who seem to be completely together and utterly prepared for everything, immaculate, perfect. They seem to do everything. And there's this kind of sense of privilege, you know, well, why wouldn't you be perfect too? It starts, as I read, her house explodes and we find out why later. But in the rubble, she's looking for all of these sort of possessions of hers. And she comes across some of her books that are charred. And she finds the shed, but there's another door to the shed that she hadn't noticed before. And she basically stumbles into this strange, otherworldly place. She thinks it's just another part of Edinburgh and maybe she doesn't know how she got there. And then it turns out that, in fact, there is this parallel world in Edinburgh known as the Middle Market. You know, you've got the old town and the new town, the sort of like the middle town of Edinburgh, which is full of creatures and personalities from Scottish folklore. And it's this bubble of eternal time that's lived there forever before humans. And within this world of the middle market is an extra hour in the day. There's actually 25 hours of the day. You can imagine 24 and then this is like little bubble at the top of the 24. That's the 25th hour. And if you're in the circle of knowledge, you can go to this hour experience an hour of your time, do things that nobody else can do, finish your work, uh, learn a sport, or do read, sleep, whatever you want to do, and then go back to your time and no time has passed. So there are lots of connections to old stories. There's old stories about sort of the, the Rip Van Winkle going to sleep and Urashima Taro in, in Japanese lore. There's lots of these things where it's simply eternal fairy time, if you like, the fae time, the she as they're known in this book. So she stumbles upon all these characters and sees Credenza there. Credenza is this friend from school who is the immaculate one, the perfect girl. And I was like, oh, that's why. That's how all these people do it. There's all these famous people there. All these. That's how these people do it, is that they go and they experience this extra hour. And of course, when she comes home, everything's gravy, everything's great, until the point when she realizes it has a cost. And mm-hmm. I won't spoil that for you, but it has an extremely profound and deep cost. And there's a sort of sense of humans will do whatever it takes to feel good without damn the consequences feel to it on a bigger level, I hope. So this 
sense of Ailsa and her friends suddenly realizing what they've done, what everybody has done, and there is a very limited window of time to solve it before everything goes extremely bad. Yes, whenever you meet anything from the other world, the other side, the she, the brolican, you know you're not in for a completely smooth ride. Well, the brolican in particular, who is uh, it's an entity from Scottish folklore that I've been fascinated with for years. Uh, you don't want to mess with the brolican. That's all I'm going to say. There's a melding in this book of rationality, science, logic. You've mentioned the scientific method and mm-hmm. fantasy. And it is the writing of ideas. So both mm-hmm. science and fantasy are concerned ultimately with trying to express ideas. Yes. I think you grew up in a family with a father who was an esteemed astronomer. So yes. did that have an impact on you know your view of how these things fit together? Kind of, though bizarrely, my dad, my late father, I should say, bless him, he didn't really have the scientific method as a means of parenting. It was quite the opposite. He would be doing the washing up and looking at the suds spiraling into the plug hole. And I'd know that he's looking at a galaxy far, far away in his head. He's not really here. He's He was the present father. But it's that sense of, it was more that I've had some teachers in my life who were profoundly smart at locking me, who was more of a daydreamy, brighterly kid, into the logic, the, the pleasure of logic and the pleasure of the method and the pleasure of algebra and even like factorial, the sense of you can simplify a complex thing into a more simple thing. I love the idea of this girl whose grandmother is a scientist giving her a kind of map to life, which is basically if you come across something which is weird, break it down and experiment, observe, and then go back again. And mm-hmm. So dealing with the unknown, which is obviously there's a lot of unknown when you're a kid. And so I, I would have loved to have embed- the scientific method embedded in me a little bit more when I was navigating all the things I had to navigate when I was Elsa's age. I just like the idea of in any fantasy, if you have something grounded, then everything has rules. Even fantasy has rules. And that, I think, makes everything feel like it has more stakes. If you can just click your fingers and, you know, a magic invisible dragon comes down and deals with everything and leaves, it's less interesting to me as a storyteller. I like things that are relatable, even if they are in a completely different world. And they do that. We do that in sort of in TV in particular, if you're doing something that is not set in this universe, you have to have the mythology, right? You have to have the rules of engagement mm-hmm. written down so that things are consistent. It's very gratifying that that's something that you picked up on the book because it was very important to me. Writing for screen or television, is very different from writing a narrative, a story in which your personal voice is going to be the thing that carries it. And I love the, I love the voice <laughs> in this story. Thank uh, you. I, I would describe it as, obviously, it's a third person narrator. It's an intrusive narrator. It has footnotes. It's focalized uh, through Ailsa's uh, viewpoint. Sometimes with the Brolican and Monroe sometimes, but only for effect. Most of the book is with Ailsa. I'm just interested to know if that voice was purely intuitive or whether you had to work at finding the voice for this story. 
I will be honest, it's how I've always written prose. I did it when I was 10, writing short stories in English and getting encouragement from my teacher, who had been to school with Douglas Adams, who was my favorite author at the time. I just remember Harry Quinn was his name. And I just remember just being absolutely thrilled that I had a personality of any sort. At that age, it's like you've got anything, you hold on to it. So it just has always come naturally to me, that tone of voice. The, the, the challenge really was making sure that it didn't intrude in narrative. I'm a big believer in rising action. You don't just take time out for a joke or comment or a footnote, or I think one of the footnotes lambasts you at one point. It's like, why are you looking down here? There's like a really exciting thing happening up there. I wanted it to be as completely me a prose experience as I just wanted to be honest about it. Maybe the, the second book that I'm writing now might have a little bit less of the footnotes, but frankly, I can't sort of stop them. Mm. <laughs> it just sort of happens. And and so like the process of writing a script, for example, is there's a lot of lovely white space in scripts. It's like regular haikus of scenes. You're looking for economy of expression. And a book is different. A book is is you have to do all the lifting yourself. I wrote two adult thrillers when I had a show on BBC many years ago, an espionage spy show. And um, I wrote these spy thrillers that were really fun to write, but really quite tiring. Because once you've figured out what to write, this is the thing. Writing is about knowing what to write down, right? That, that's the challenge. How you write it down, how you express it depends on the medium. It sounds ridiculous to say that out loud, but it's it's true. And you just change the way that you approach expressing the story. So in a script, you can cut away and you can show, not tell. But in a book, you do have to tell as well, in my opinion. And I think it's the opportunity. You go into the interior world of the characters. You talk about the world of psychology and soul and feeling and the unsaid. And I think that's really important, particularly if you're a kid and you maybe don't have the skills to say everything you want to say, but you certainly feel it. Really interesting. I mean, I'm not sure that the reader absorbed in the story would necessarily pick this up. But as I was reading it, I became very aware that as we moved into the story, particularly as we kind of head towards the climactic moment, those footnotes recede and, and the narrative takes over. Yes, okay. Until good. we get to the very end. <laughs> yes, and the very end is a sort of like bonus reel. But that's really good because, I mean, the whole point of the book is it's an exciting read. It's 60 chapters. It's 60 minutes of an hour. It's the missing hour of that Elsa finds and how on earth is she going to solve this terrible problem? This time is at the center of all of our lives. The prime directive for me was write something that was exciting and write it that was thrilling and, and full of holding on to important information as much as I could to conceal it. That's the whole point of a thrill is incomplete information and dilemmas. And so tr trying to have a, a piece of children's fiction that hits that squarely yet is about a big thing. I used to joke, I was like, I was writing a la recherche du, du temps perdu and Raiders of the Lost Ark at the same time. It's like, how do I make time interesting but exciting? One of the ways in which you achieve that is through short chapters, and they almost run like scenes. And I wondered whether that was from your screenwriting. Probably, thing. yeah. It's over 70,000 words. It's not a short book, but I wanted the feeling of it to be snappy. And I just have a general tempo when I write. Enter late, leave early. That's the mechanism that's supposed to be operating there. Kids are absolutely engulfed by TV, narrative, quick cut, all that stuff. 
books are not supposed to be like that. And the magic hour isn't really, it just gets to where it's going in a different way than maybe other books. And I sort of wanted it to be like just one more chapter kind of a book. You also get the prize for taking one of my favourite words and personifying it. I love gloaming. It's my favourite time of the day. And I love that word. (laughs) Same, same. Oh, I'm very pleased about that. Yeah. And Alessia Trippier did a beautiful illustration of a varietal of gloaming. And that was probably the second personality who introduced themselves when I was thinking about this book of just my memories of Edinburgh are all in that time because it's the the colors are so like if you think of heather and like a an old lock or something and the silver of the lock and the purple of the heather all sort of combines in this beautiful twilight which is the the portal to the next world if you like so mm-hmm. that's kind of all tied in i'd never thought before of a daytime and a nighttime gloaming i absolutely love that idea opinion is divided I think if you had a Scots dictionary to hand, there might be gloaming as more of the evening. And there's another word for the morning. I can't remember it right now in Gaelic. But I think that the sort of a, the accepted wisdom is that twilight is twilight. If you're entering or leaving it, it's still a door, you know. It reminds me of that painting in the National Gallery, which I always go and look at just for the lighting, carnation lily, lily rose. Do you know that? I don't, but I can picture it already. (laughs) That's the thing about saying something is in that palette. You just know it. And I think they did a wonderful, Alessia did a beautiful job in in the cover as well, just trying to evoke that sense of the place in between, Mm -hmm. um, which is where you are when you're 11. Let's be honest. All all kids in that age are in in the gloaming a bit. You've hinted at a second book. I have. You can't tell us a lot, but can you tell us anything? Um, it's called The Infinite Minute. I think I can tell you that. At the end of book one, there are some loose threads which are quite concerning, and um, you'd be right. And it deals with a different part of time and I think a different psychological consequence of time. We all need something to look forward to, and I'm really pleased that you're sticking with the world of children's books, at least for Oh, thank you. I, I, it's, it's, my, it's the most fun I've ever had in writing, mm-hmm. hands, hands down. And thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been an thank absolute you. pleasure and an education. <laughs> well, same here. Thank you, Nikki, very much. <laughs>